Our lesson comes from the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Very familiar words, verses 1 through 10. And he entered and was passing through Jericho, and behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was. He was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said unto him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped, and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. May God bless to our hearts an understanding of this important part of his word. If a psychiatrist or a psychologist were to talk to you about the psychology of conversion, he would tell you that that God consciousness, which has hitherto been marginal and vague, becomes either dramatically or gradually dominant and decisive and controlling. That's when a conversion takes place. And we have seen conversions like that of Paul when that light brighter than a thousand suns smote him on the road to Damascus when he was persecuting the people of Jesus. And you remember how that Saul of Tarsus said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And that one was in a definite act of God speaking to him and in a definite response that he made to Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And later, that was sealed with the seal of baptism too. There was a blind man, a blind man who made a journey into light, a blind man in the ninth chapter of the gospel according to John whose faith could not be shaken, even though he was put out of the synagogue because he trusted in Jesus as the Messiah and it was unpopular to do so. Then there was an Ethiopian, a seeker after God who had come from a long, long journey, who had only some of the scriptures, but who studied what he had, and whose example puts us to shame that we make so little of the use of the opportunities of grace that we have for both Bible study and devotion and prayer. But this Ethiopian, this seeker after God who had gone all the way into the city of Jerusalem, and who had been there perhaps at Pentecost and is returning home, is met by Philip, a deacon in the church, but a layman who knew how to tell another person how he could find Christ as his Savior, and who is a challenge to each one of you that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you ought to be able to tell someone else how to believe in him too. And if you had someone who asked you the simple question, how may I become a Christian? What would you respond? How could you answer that question? Well, there was another man that we studied about, a man in a jail in Philippi, 
You remember Paul had gone to Europe and his first convert on European soil had been a rich lady who was a seller of purple by the name of Lydia. We are told that the Holy Spirit opened her heart so that she received the words which Paul had spoken, and that's always the way it is in any true conversion. It's when the Holy Spirit opens the heart of someone to receive the word of God that they're saved. There's no trick that the preacher can employ. There is just the work of the Holy Spirit in persuading and enabling us to embrace the truth of God so that we are willing to yield to that truth, and Lydia did and was converted. And then the poor, demented slave girl, demon-possessed, who not only goes and has a cure that has perfected by Paul and a demon cast from her, but who becomes an example of the fact that in the church of Jesus there can be no class barrier, that she may sit by the communion table and pick up the same golden goblet that Lydia might sup the Lord's Supper from and touch it to her own lips even though she was the property of someone else as a slave. And then there was that civil servant, that Roman soldier, that Roman soldier who saw to it that Paul and Silas were beaten and flung into the inner prison and whose feet were locked in stocks and who in the midst of the night sang praises to God and then the great earthquake that occurred. And after that earthquake, that man came because of having heard probably the conversation that had gone on about Paul in his weeks in Philippi and in what he had said while he had been in the jail and he said, what must I do to be saved? The only way any of us can be saved came back, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And he did believe and he was baptized that night in a definite act. And then we saw, we saw a woman at the well. We saw an ignorant person who came out in the blaring noonday sun to draw water. And what would seem to others as just a casual encounter with Jesus turns into a tremendous experience because Jesus moves with the greatest ease in and out among people. He does not care whether you are rich or poor, whether you are a person uh, who makes the highest board scores of 1600 or whether you're one of those who didn't do that. He doesn't care whether you're beautiful or whether you're not as beautiful as other people in the same way that other people care. He loves you because he made you. And he wants to be in your heart. And so this woman who had been married five times and is living with a man who is not her husband enters into a conversation with Jesus. And it winds up with Jesus telling her about a water that will quench her thirsty but guilty soul. And she wants that water. And Jesus reveals to this person, and she is the first to whom he reveals who he is, that he is the Messiah. And she goes into the city of Samaria and brings back a great crowd of people, and he stays there for two days amongst these hated people of another race, seeing to it that they have an opportunity to believe. Then we saw a rich young man with an opportunity to believe in Jesus who had many admirable traits. He had manners, he had money, he had morals, and he came to Jesus, but he would not pay the price, and he went away sadly. I've often thought about the 
price that people pay when they give up faith in Jesus Christ. Charles Dickens has a marvelous story called Dombey and Sons. And in it, there's a very moving little scene with little Paul, whose mother had died with tuberculosis, and he himself now has consumption and is dying. And they look into the fire, and as the fire is flickering, he says to his father, Papa, what's money? And his father tells him, oh, money, my boy. Money will make you influential and powerful, and people will bow to you and speak to you on the street. And they'll know who you are, and you can do great things. And little Paul said, Papa, if money can do so much, why did Mama die? The father is pensive for a while. And then the little boy says to his father, Papa, can money make me well? And his money couldn't make him well. Well, the rich young ruler turned away sorrowful because he had great possessions and he was not willing to give up his great wealth to follow Jesus. Anything may be our great possession. It may not be a huge bank account. It may be our own stubborn self-will. It may be some secret thing that other people do not know about. Some element of pride. Some other thing. But Jesus wants all of us, when we come to him, he does not compromise. He wants to take every bit of us. And we have to give as much of ourselves as we know how to give to him. And now today we look at a man, you remember last week, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German martyr, who was a student, by the way, of Karl Barth and wrote his doctoral dissertation in dealing with a thing that touches on what we're talking about today. If I ask most of you to say, what is the, what is the story of Zacchaeus teach you? Let's call it the Zacchaeus incident. And what does the Zacchaeus incident really demonstrate? Nine out of ten would say it demonstrates, it illustrates the love of God. What it does is tell you the love of God in action. That love is a verb. That it is a decision that God has made. And conversion is when we are turned over to God. And God comes and indwells us. This is what the Zacchaeus incident demonstrates, and that's what the disciples cannot understand. Do you know where Jesus is going in this 19th chapter of Luke? He is on his way to raise Lazarus from the dead. And in just a few short days, Jesus himself is going to be nailed to a cross. But on his way to that cross, and on his way to the extreme situation of Martha and Mary and Lazarus, that family that he loved so well. People throng the way because he is famous by now. He has healed a blind man who is a beggar by the road, and it's unfortunate that the chapter division breaks it there in the 18th chapter of Luke. But a blind man that they couldn't hush was crying out to him in messianic terms, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. He was giving to him a claim of deity. And the crowd was saying to him, the disciples of Jesus, perhaps the same who shushed the little children up, said, be quiet. 
And Jesus said, who is that calling me? Jesus loves that. He loves it when someone is determined to get to him. And he went to this blind man and asked him what he would have him do for him. And he told him, and Jesus made him whole. One of the signs of the Messiah is fulfilled again. The Messiah was to make the blind to see, to preach the gospel to the poor, to make the lame to walk, the lepers clean. And Jesus fulfills that sign. And I think they're all thinking, he's tremendous, isn't he? What a great prophet Jesus is, just like John the Baptist. And there they were in John the Baptist's country. Not far from there was where the castle was that John the Baptist had been put in prison and beheaded. And you know how Jesus loved John. And yet John had to preach a stern doctrine of judgment. But he did not fully understand what Jesus was doing. And Jesus had to send word to him. You remember when he was in prison, John became discouraged. And Jesus had to send word to him and remind him of what the Messiah came to do. Now Jesus would bring a judgment, but it was a different judgment than what John had in mind. And there is a judgment yet to come. And I think that the disciples of Jesus and when Jesus gets to Jericho, which is a rich city, and the general collector of taxes for Jericho would have been a very wealthy man. And Zacchaeus must have had many slaves. He must have had a great home. He must have had a beautiful place. But with all of this, he was miserable and lonely and dissatisfied. Down in his heart, something had been crushed. And he was miserable. But Zacchaeus somehow had heard about Jesus. And there's little doubt in my mind but what he heard about Jesus from Matthew. Because Matthew himself had been a tax collector just like Zacchaeus. And Matthew, I think, must somehow have gotten to Zacchaeus and told him all about Jesus. And I think that Matthew told Jesus all about Zacchaeus. And while they were walking on their way to Jericho, I think that Matthew must have said to Jesus, Oh, Master, you know you told that story about the two men who went up into the temple to play the, pray, the one is a Pharisee, the one is a publican. I was so glad you told that story because everybody just runs the publicans down. They never think they'll ever be saved. And I'm glad you told it, and I want you to know that the chief of all the publicans in all of Jericho with all of its wealth, I think if you would only talk to him, that he would give it all up. He wouldn't be like that rich young man. I think he'd follow you. And so when Jesus comes into the city of Jericho, if ever a welcoming committee had its plans knocked awry, that one was really knocked into a cocktail. I'm sure the mayor of Jericho had decided that he would be there. And the city fathers and the chief rabbis and the other people would, were going to watch Jesus as he came into the town. Big deal. Crowds of people lining the street. And what happens? Jesus, walking along, looks into a tree with a lot of leaves on it, and he says, Zacchaeus, 
I see you up there in that tree. Little short guy. Couldn't see over the crowd. But he was determined to see Jesus, so he climbs up into the tree so he can see him, and he's hiding there in the leaves. Jesus said, I see you up there, Zacchaeus. These people said, he's no John the Baptist. He's no Elijah. If he knew who that crook was, he would call him down out of the tree and we would hack his head off. He's cheated us out of everything we've got. And Jesus said, come down, I must go to your house to eat. And they all murmured. And the church has been murmuring ever since about something. Billy Graham buys Porter's Cove. The Charlotte Observer comes out with a headline, Graham buys land with mafia ties. Same sort of thing. It would be if Jesus went to Phoenix and he called up Joe Bonanno and said, Joe, I want to come over to your house tonight for supper. I'm coming over. I'll see you after a while. Bye, Joe. And he went over. The next day, the Phoenix paper. Jesus eating with Joe Bonanno. He's joined a mafia. <laughs> That's the same sort of thing. He puts his reputation on the line. He doesn't care anything about reputation. Love is always vulnerable. Talking with that woman at the well. Huh. You think he would be invited to speak any place after he goes to Zacchaeus' house? And the people all murmured. I expect that Peter must have said, that crook Zacchaeus, why he's cheated everyone around here. Everybody knows about him. I'm not going in his house. I'm going to eat outside. If Jesus wants to eat with him, he can eat with him. But I'm eating out here. I got some pride left. But Jesus goes into Zacchaeus' house and he eats with Zacchaeus. And Lloyd C. Douglas, who is a master writer, has a perfectly beautiful account of what happened there. It's all imagination, but boy, it's tremendous. Because he explains all of the luxuries that must have existed in Zacchaeus' home, and how he tries to impress Jesus by pointing out his paintings and his antiques and his statuary and his artifacts that he's gotten from different places. And all of his servants bring the best food. And Jesus isn't interested in all these things. And Zacchaeus' his name means pure. It may have been that when he was born, his mother wanted him to be a rabbi. And so Jesus talks to Zacchaeus. We don't know what they said. I can't wait till I get to heaven to ask Zacchaeus what they talked about. I know it must have really been tremendous. But I have an idea that Jesus did a lot of listening and Zacchaeus did a lot of wondering. He thought, you know, he's different. He's not impressed with all this stuff. He's different. And he even loves me. No one else loves me. Even though I've got all this thing, I've got all these hired friends, but I don't have any real friends. And yet he loves me. And Jesus just kept looking at him eyeball to eyeball. And Lloyd Douglas says that Zacchaeus could see mirrored in Jesus' eyes his own image. Zacchaeus' his own image. And finally, Zacchaeus breaks into tears. And he begins to quiver, his hands shake, and he puts his head down. 
and he weeps. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, you too are a son of Abraham. I came here for a reason. I came to bring salvation to this house. Zacchaeus walks out on the portico of his beautiful home. The crowds of people out there on the great spacious lawn, they all run up to the portico to see what happens. Zacchaeus, choking with emotion, says to them, half of everything I've got goes to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone, I intend to restore him fourfold, much more than the law demands. Now, friends, that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called costly grace. And that's why when Karl Barth taught Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was trying to keep him away from the foolish thing that Rudolf Bultmann did when he got into the idea that what was important was the Christ idea, not what Christ did. In other words, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead on Easter Day. But the Easter idea is what's important to the church. Well, now that is utter nonsense to a Jew. Greeks thought about thoughts. Jews thought about events that took place. They celebrated the exodus. And if they said only the idea is important, they'd still be back in Egypt. And so this didn't make any sense to them. So this is a very, very Hebrew thing. And costly grace means very simply this, that what cost God so much is not going to be cheap for you. Never forget that. What cost God so much cannot be cheap for you. And it wasn't cheap for Zacchaeus. It wasn't cheap for the rich young ruler. They had to learn that. That's costly grace. What cost God so much cannot be cheap for you. Remember it. And that great transformation takes place. Zacchaeus doesn't go away sorrowful. He's full of joy. Salvation has come to his house that day. And when we give ourselves to Jesus Christ, that costly grace speaks to us in the same way too. You know, this past week I've been watching that program, The Holocaust, again. I did a series of studies at the University of Edinburgh on the influence of religion by political demagogues. How they use it. So I had to read books on Goebbels. We say Goebbels in, in our way of speaking in America. He was an interesting little man. He was born in 1897. He would be about 82 years old, I guess, this fall, in a little Rhineland village. When he was just a little boy, four years old, Joseph was considered to be very, very bright. When he was six, he began to cry for some unexpected reason. His family couldn't find out what was wrong with him. They took him to doctor after doctor, and finally they found out that he had a form of what we now know to be poliomyelitis. An operation was performed on him, and the operation left his 
right leg five full inches shorter than his left leg. And when he came out of the hospital, he had sharp features and gaunt, deep-set eyes and a huge head, and people laughed at him. And he learned how painful it is to be different from other people. And they called him the limping louse. He was very smart and in school he could make the highest grades and so he knew how he could get back at them. He could learn. And he read everything he could get his hands on. And he became a monstrous little show-off with all of his knowledge. And this only intensified the way other people held him in contempt. In 1924, he took his doctorate at the University of Heidelberg. And in 1925, he heard a man speaking on the streets. And he went out to listen to him speak. And that man was an orator named Adolf Hitler. And Hitler looked him into the eyes and said, I want you. And Joseph Goebbels came and followed Adolf Hitler. I've often thought what would have happened if someone could have gotten to that evil genius with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What could have happened to him? The craziness that Hitler went into. I remember going to that great congress on evangelism in Lausanne in Switzerland and our, our boys wanted to go across the lake into France just so we could say we'd been to France. So we caught one of those little boats that you ride across when we went to Evian. I think that's the way you say it. Sound like you got a cold. But uh, anyway, it was a pretty little town, a lot of flowers, very beautiful hotel. In 1938, in July, there was a conference called together of 32 nations at the request of President Roosevelt to see if something could do for the, be done for the plight of the Jews in Germany. At that time, there were only 35,000 Jews in Germany and 220,000 in Austria. But problems had already begun. And so at Evian, this beautiful little town in that hotel, a conference was held. These 32 nations were asked if they would not consider taking 570,000 Jews in Germany and Austria by each taking 18,000 Jews as, as immigrants. Now, we've taken over 585,000 Cubans and Vietnamese and are taking still more, and we need to. But the people here began to say that they couldn't look after this many Jews. Golda Meir was 40 years old at the time, and she had come there to represent the miserable plight of the Jews, and they would not even permit her to speak. She couldn't even speak. When the final document was drawn up with the report of the conference, it was insisted that any word of criticism of the Third Reich had to be stricken out. And they knew all the time that the Jews had already been arrested and taken to Buchenwald, where they were beaten and whipped and tortured to work. 
And where at night a loudspeaker with a recorder went on and on saying any Jew who wishes to hang himself is asked first to put a piece of paper in his mouth with his number on it so that we may know who he is. Human beings can do that to other human beings when human nature is not changed. And the horror, and it couldn't even be portrayed on television, of what they did shows, and it'll happen again. I've heard people, I've had people say to me in these ears right here, Calvin, it had to be done. The Jews had all the good jobs. They had all the good jobs. It had to be done. That's the kind of talk you appeal to. I talked to an SS man one time who had become a believer. And he told me when he was a little boy, he had joined the Hitler Youth and what had happened to him and the things that he hoped that God would erase from his memory, how he'd come to Jesus. And I said to him, I was absolutely dumbfounded. This was right after World War II, and I was in a camp called Agape in the mountains in northern Italy. There was a little Jewish boy in our room. I said, Werner, how on earth could you do these things? We were sitting out on a rock by a stream by ourselves. And he said to me, Calvin, In every man there is a little Hitler. And sometime or other a big Hitler will come along and speak to the little Hitler in him and he will respond and he will do evil. We have in our own congregation here a lovely lady, Helen Schoes. Her dear beloved husband, sainted and with Jesus, Out in Vancouver this summer, a Hungarian pastor told me. He said, is Helen Schoes in Montreat? And I said, yes. And he said, do you know her? And I said, very well. He said, her husband was to me the greatest hero. He was responsible for saving thousands of little Jewish children from being put to death and hungry. And I thought, here, we never knew this. You see, love is an act. Zacchaeus acted. Jesus acted, not as an illustration so he could hand it out to his press people and say, see what I did, give them the story. He did this because of his love. That is his love. And it took him all the way to the cross. And it means that each one of you, if you have the conscience that tells you that you need a savior, and he speaks to that need today, you can make that costly commitment and receive that costly grace which brings to you salvation. was thinking last night about the devil because I'd read an article by A.W. Tozier that brought it to my mind. He said there was a time when God loved the devil. 
And then he said, God doesn't love the devil anymore. The devil was a special being. He sinned in a special kind of way. And there was nothing in him that God could see that reminded him of himself anymore. And so century after century after century, we've been through what we saw in the Holocaust and other things that go on inside our own heart. But for you and for me, there is still time. And there is still grace. And he is still speaking to us because his son hung in a body like you and I have on a tree and died to take away our sins. And we are asked to respond to that. And when we respond to that costly grace, then we become new creations in Christ Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, our theme has been very big this morning. And we've seen very big things take place here. We thank thee for that outward sign of an inward grace which you have worked in a believer's heart. We thank you that for all of us there can be transactions made that you can enable us by your Spirit's leading to yield ourselves more completely to you. And those who do not know you, help them to know the Savior's great seeking love that he came to seek and to finish seeking by saving those who are lost and that he wants us. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our keeper and our guide be and abide with us all both now and forevermore.